Fixing defense acquisition might be a perennial topic at the Pentagon, but Rada Plum, the DOD's Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment, says the DOD just needs to make better use of its current systems. What ideas does she have to make acquisition work better? Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr found out at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. All right, Alex, what did you find out? Well, it was interesting because what Secretary Plum was saying is that they have a lot of good systems in place right now. They just kind of need to coordinate them and make them work together. She talked about adaptive acquisition framework. In other words, putting things together, making them work together. She talked about middle-tier acquisition, other transaction authority, the software acquisition pathway, all just taking things that have been developed to speed acquisition and making them work together so that the process goes a little bit more smoothly. Here's what she had to say. We're employing everything from MTAs and OTAs to the software acquisition pathway to create a range of hybrid strategies that enable scale. The key is we want to do that deliberately, focused first and foremost on the challenge we're trying to solve and the end result. So we don't want this to just be about more OTAs. It's really about leveraging all of these authorities to scale capabilities. Yeah, they've got a big toolbox and they have to know what they want to build and then pick the right tools, I guess is what she's saying. Did she mention anything specific here? She did mention a couple of programs. One of them is called CAPS. It's the Competitive Advantage Pathfinders program. And what it does is use cross-department teams. They say they're fixing the problem while they're delivering capability. It's kind of like fixing a plane while it's flying. One example she gave was a program called Medusa. It's a joint project run by both the Air Force and the Navy, and it's miniature ship-based electronic modules that are delivering capabilities in two years and then looking at accelerated delivery for the actual program in two to four years. So by defense acquisition terms, pretty fast. What else did she talk about? The second big issue on her list was barriers to integration and really just looking at problems for joint operability. That's kind of the catchword now. You have JADC2. All of the services are trying to make sure particularly their software systems work well together. You want to not have stove piping. You want to reduce barriers to entry and to work to make sure that there's compliance and security across the different services and their systems. She mentioned a specific team that works on that. So inside of ANS, we stood up this acquisition integration interoperability team, and their job is to align service-specific systems acquisition to meet joint requirements. So what does that mean? That office runs what we call an integrated acquisition portfolio review. It takes a capability and a mission thread and really looks at the underlying service-specific programs, identifies where there are gaps or seams, areas that we need investment for integration, and focuses on identifying resources for that integration with particular focus on year of execution funding. Well, the whole thing has to add up to the fact that JADC2 is a Pentagon-wide program, but each armed service has its own component of JADC2, which has the flavor of that component, but they have to all add up to JADC2, and I think this is her strategy for helping get there. What about recruiting and people to take this on that have that kind of mindset to try all the tools in the toolbox? Well, that was the third part of her strategy for improving the system overall. And she mentioned a couple different ways that she feels like they can help recruiting. One is obviously incentives, and they're working on different incentives. And then they've got a new program called the Defense Civilian Training Corps. It started in June, and the first cohort of students is now in progress. And it's a ROTC-type program. It's at various universities, and it follows the scholarship for service scheme where they'll give you money to go to school if you'll agree to go be a defense acquisition professional. 
none of this happens without the right people in the right places. So I'll just start by saying that we're really focused on this end-to-end. So we're looking at expanding recruitment through programs like our Defense Civilian Training Corps, on building more modular innovation-focused training. Um, That's work going on at DAU and how we can create the right kind of incentives to do that innovative work, encouraging the right kind of risk-taking. And she mentioned Defense Acquisition University, DAU. Does that have a part in the plan she's outlined? That is a big part of the plan. And this year, DAU really expanded its online offerings so they could get to the workforce wherever they were. They've done a whole lot to expand what they're offering and make themselves more useful in that training process for the workforce. Here's Undersecretary Plum. We're working on kind of bringing in the generation of the future. That has two advantages for us. First, we just need a continuous acquisition and sustainment workforce to continue doing the work, but also brings in a new audience, right? Digital natives, people who are much Mm -hmm. more familiar with a range of the software-enabled systems we're talking about. And we have a couple of different programs there. I mentioned DCTC, the Defense Civilian Training Corps, which is essentially like ROTC for civilians, um, focused on the acquisition community. And once again, that was Rada Plum, the DOD's Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment. Well, so there's a lot of things going on, a lot of initiatives going on, almost as silos and stovepipes, and she's seeking to integrate them, again, from the standpoint not of each individual channel of opportunity, like JADC2 or what DAU is doing, but let's start with the problem that we need to solve, like a JADC2, what's the best pieces of the acquisition system to bring to bear on that particular problem at that time? It kind of echoes some things I've been hearing from different defense professionals over the summer. We have the tools. We've been given these tools. Now let's just use them and make sure we use them right, use them often, and get the process into a system where we can deliver capabilities a lot faster than we have been. Yeah, I wonder how many people actually look at all the pages of the DFAR from time to time, because pretty much anything you want to do is in there, but often people just use a few sections. You know, maybe that's part of the problem. Old story. I'm thinking you probably have it memorized. Well, not memorized, but I have read it. <laughs> if, you want to, if you're an insomniac, I recommend it. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lore, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into 
the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. Uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arena. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff. Okay. Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right. And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on. Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause, and, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, 
Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two. Yeah. That's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother. You know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings, and so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. 
The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.